<clears throat> Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. So it's my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Levine. He's a rabbi at the Orthodox Shul in Willow Glen over on Meridian. He's been our rabbi for a little over 10 years now. He's helped to grow that shul into a very strong uh, congregation. He's uh, especially uh, qualified to talk to us this morning. Uh, besides being uh, a rabbi, he also, um, all four of his grandparents are Holocaust uh, survivors, as you've heard from him before. He also uh, is very um, studied in history. In fact, at uh, Yeshiva uh, University, which is one of the places that he studied, he got an award for history, um, besides other things like Talmudic studies. Among other uh, places that he studied is the famed uh, Mir Yeshiva in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, also, he actually has a law degree from a prestigious uh, Ivy League University, Penn. So, uh, without further ado, Rabbi Levine. Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, as we say in the old country. Um, it really, I just uh, thank you for inviting me again. I, it's, um, I look at this, you know, as Russ mentioned, uh, all four of my grandparents were not only Polish Jews, uh, but Holocaust survivors. Uh, I, I, my name is a combination of my two great-grandfathers' names, both murdered in the Holocaust. And I grew up um, with the Holocaust in my blood, really. And I, I look at it as a particular honor to be able to speak to this prestigious group, and I thank Sherry for organizing as well. Um, today, this lecture is entitled Spiritual Heroism in the Valley of Death. The great Boston Rebbe once said, Zachor, to remember, is a very Jewish idea. We have Yizkor. We remember our loved ones on the holidays or in Yom Kippur. But you've got to put remembrance into perspective. We need to remember that even the tragedies closest to our time, first and foremost is the Holocaust, not only should we remember the pain or the self-sacrifice, but we should remember not only what the victims died for, but what the victims lived for. So today, we're going to speak about spiritual heroism. Now, remarkably, I'm not even sure how this happened. I got email last week um, by a middle school in South San Jose and by Martin Murphy Middle School. They said that they heard that I'm speaking on this topic today here. So they asked me to speak uh, to their 8th grade of several hundred kids this week. And the, they said, because very often you hear about the Holocaust and all you hear is the tragedies. And, they, and this, apparently, this Martin Murphy Middle School, I think it's majority Hispanic, from what I see, uh, they want them to hear some of the positivity, some of the greatness of spirit that went on during the Holocaust. And that's what we'll speak about today. Uh, Russ, I thank you for your introduction. 
you missed an important thing. That when I was in high school, uh, believe it or not, I played on the, on the varsity basketball team. Now, <laughs> I, you know, obviously I was not the center or the forward. I was the point guard. I was quick, right? But we had, you know, a coach who in the private school leagues um, a couple of years before I was in the championship. And our coach, his name was Mitchell Means. And mean he was. In a nice way. He would kill us. He would push us. Um, and, you know, he would joke around with us. But I remember one time, it was halftime, and we were, we were losing to a team pretty badly, I think, if I remember correctly. And we got into the, to, into the, to the locker room, and the coach starts berating us. And, you know, it is, he was a philo-Semite. He was certainly not anti-Semitic. He was trying to motivate us. And he says to us, he says, you guys are so weak. You guys are so weak. That's why in the Holocaust you didn't even resist. Oh, my goodness. Now, when I'm telling you when he said that, he was trying to push us. He says, you guys are a bunch of giver-uppers. You know, he happened to be African-American. And he says, if it was us, we would have fought back left and right. That's what he said. So, again, he said that. I'm telling you, he was not trying to be at all hurtful. He was trying to get us to win the game. But the comment didn't come from nowhere. But that's what's important. That perception of that we didn't do anything. We were so weak. We didn't resist. We didn't try to stop it. I've heard that from many Jews. I've heard that from many, from many people. So I'd like just to, to start out with the obstacles to, first of all, physical resistance. You know, one of the questions that are commonly asked the Hawkins is why we didn't resist. Now, there were, of course, a few famous uh, cases of physical resistance. There was the Warsaw Ghetto resistance uprising. There was a famous Jewish partisans uh, revolt at Sobibor death camp. There was uh, the attempted escape from Treblinka, which afterwards Treblinka was shut down. There was uh, the rebellion of the Sunder Commandos at Auschwitz. But nevertheless, the Germans uh, possessed a massive, powerful army. The c- civilians were defenseless. And unfortunately, my grandmother, who passed away a couple years ago, 103, would tell, told me, that when she was running away in, uh, in, into Ukraine, the Ukrainians were as bad as the Germans. There was very little place to hide. So actually, I saw... Um, has, has everyone been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington City? Or many of you have been to the... Yeah. So if you go there in the Holocaust Museum in Washington City, there's one of the pamphlets that they have uh, is brings down the obstacles, the obstacles to resistance, to physical resistance in the Holocaust. And this is some of the things that that pamphlet says. Number one, the Germans had a superior armed power. (laughs) They defeated France in how many weeks? Six weeks. Poland was was essentially destroyed in a few days. France, which which was considered one of the strongest armies in the world, was destroyed in six weeks. So to expect people without weapons, without an army, to be successfully resist would be Surreal. Number two in the pamphlet brought down, and this is very important, the Germans practiced collective responsibility, which means when they retaliated, 
they didn't just retaliate against one person. If anything happened, they retaliated against the community. So, for example, this is the, the examples that the pamphlet brought down, but there are many, many more examples. In Donlaniv, which was the, near the old capital of Vilna, the entire ghetto was killed. They killed the entire ghetto after two boys escaped and did not return. So if you're those two boys, you know if you escape, you endangered the entire ghetto. The ghetto of Bialystok, Poland, the Germans shot 120 Jews on the street after one boy named Abraham Malamed shot a German policeman. At the Treblinka killing center in occupied uh, Poland, camp guards killed 26 Jewish prisoners after four other Jews escaped. After Mayor Berliner, a Jewish prisoner at Treblinka, killed Max Bialis, who was a high-ranking Nazi officer, the guards in- murdered 160 people as retaliation, t- retaliation. So if you attack the Germans, their modus operandi was to kill many people. And they made that known and clear that any act of retaliation will be met with tremendous retribution on all around you, including many of your loved ones. Number three was the isolation of the Jews and their lack of weapons. They had, the Jews had very few allies. They had, very, they had, very, they had fewer places to run. They had, the, 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 the native populations, the Germans put the, the concentration camps in Poland and Ukraine, not only because there were Jews there, right? they, they, they shipped Jews from Italy, from Greece, from the Netherlands, all into Poland and Ukraine. Why did they ship those to those locations? Because the native populations were not friendly to the Jews. There was native anti-Semitism there. When Jews would escape, they were very often had very. They were even turned in. My grandmother, who hid as a pole for years, told me that she remembers going into the house. She, my my Baba was blonde and blue eyes. She spoke a perfect Polish. Her brothers did not. They spoke a perfect Yiddish. They had no chance of escaping. Uh, they, she told me, she remembers they were going to hunt for Jews. And she'd have conversations with Poles. And they would say to, the, to, to, to her, we went hunting for Jews today. One of my grandfathers was in the, was in the Partisans. With the, with the, for part of the world, it was part of the Belsky brothers. Anyone heard of the Belsky brothers? Yeah. So, but even there, they, they were under, uh, uh, under attack. So they were isolated... They had lack of weapons. They, they, and even the Polish underground very often didn't work with them. And number four, that the Nazis put on a, a, a tremendous cloak of secrecy and deportation. What did it say into Auschwitz? Did it say this is a death camp when you walked in there? No, they say, Arbat Mach 3. Work will make you free. In fact, there are postcards which the Nazis gave people to send from Auschwitz a Life is cheery in Auschwitz. <laughs> Regards, right? They made Theresienstadt, right, into this model camp, which was which was a facade, which was a facade. And my wife's grandmother spent time there. Um, so physical um, resistance was very, very costly, almost futile, and very challenging. Um, Nevertheless, I'm coming from a rabbinic perspective over here. Many of the great sages of Poland and Hungary and other places uh, recommended resisting. For example, the Radzina Rebbe, Shmuel Schalmeiner, called on all Jews...
to break out of the ghettos, flee to the forests, and take up arms. Reb Shlomo Dava Yeshua Weinberg, who was a Slomo Rebbe from Litha, from Lithuania, the underground activists met in his basement in Litha. The um, Ramosha Aronson, who was in the Kodim labor camp, active was part of the planning to, to an uprising. And of course, the spiritual leader of the Warsaw ghetto uprising, and the one who gave him the backing, his name was Rabbi Menachem Zemba. He was the Ger Rebbe's right hand, and Ger was the largest Hasidic group in Poland. He was the one who told them to rebel. But those cases, unfortunately, were fewer. And so today, I'd like to focus on the spiritual resistance. I want to tell you a story. So, I, um, is a rabbi in a city called Lakers, and it's Rabbi Kalman Kron. Rabbi Kalman Kron has a cousin here. In, in, if anyone knows Shiri Eshel, anyone ever met Shiri Eshel? Yes. So, she, it's his, he is her first cousin. So, Rabbi Kalman Kron, uh, he's a very religious rabbi. From Lakewood, New Jersey. So he went, this is what happened about 25, 30 years ago. He went to Israel and he's in a taxi driver and he walks in, this very religious rabbi, and the taxi driver really did not care for him. And he looks at him and he says, oh, I don't really like you rabbis. I don't like you really like you religious people. And he really gave him the, the, a cold feeling. And in the, 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 as they're talking, Rabbi Kalman Krohn says to him, he says, you know, we are brothers. I want you to know that we're brothers. This, this, this guy looks at this taxi driver, looks at him and says, we're not brothers and we have nothing in common. So a common crone says, no, you don't understand. I have a really, really great teacher. A really, really great teacher. And he taught me that you and I are brothers. So this taxi driver says, His, who was your very foolish, great teacher? And so, Rabbi Kalman Krohn said, his name was Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler taught me that religious Jews and not religious Jews, we have the same destiny and the same fates. And that we're all together. And if we're not together, we're in big trouble. And as he said, that his great teacher was Adolf Hitler, Kalman Krohn said, the taxer swerved. Like, hit that line hit him. And it, like it stopped him, and he said, you know, Rabbi, you're right, we are brothers. So what I'm going to talk about today, you know, I'm, I'm an Orthodox rabbi, I'm unabashedly happy to be an Orthodox rabbi. I realize that this crowd, of, of, in this group, many of you are not, not may, some of you may not even be uh, religious, many of you may not even care for some things, but in the, in, the, in the case of the Holocaust right now, I want you to know we're always brothers. You should, I'm coming to explain how certain people reacted to the Holocaust. You may not always agree, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not here to teach theology today. If I was here, anyone wants to talk about the Torah theology, I have an office, it's a Meridian, I'm happy to talk. Today I'm talking about the Holocaust. And so we are brothers. You may not like that, why do you have to be so religious? You may not agree. It's okay. But I want to explain to you how some Jews, in the Holocaust, their resistance was spiritual. The way they fought the Nazis was spiritual resistance. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to speak, in this, again, into this public school, which is, I, you know, I don't know if there are any Jewish kids in that class, and I'll probably give it a little bit of a different message. I imagine most of this crowd knows the mitzvahs. I'll try to explain it. As always, if there's anything I'm missing, please ask, um, and I'll try to stay here afterwards as well. Okay. So, 
the, the spiritual resistance uh, in the Holocaust, yeah, the, the Nazis, you know, part of their agenda was not only to physically destroy the Jewish people, but to debase, to destroy the essence of who the Jews were, to make them feel like animals, to, to, to take away who they were, and, and to t- they, they, certainly to ban all, all forms of Jewish practice uh, and, and religion. And there were many, many people under the worst circumstances, we say in Jewish, in Hebrew, who were Moser Nefesh, who gave up, who exerted themselves, who pushed themselves to keep Torah and mitzvahs in the most dreadful of places. As I said, in the valley of the shadow of death. As that's a, that's a, anyone know where the valley of death, where that term comes from, out of curiosity? Does anyone know where it's come from? Psalm 23. Psalm 23. From Tillam 23. Right? King David says, Though I walk in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel, fear no evil, because you, God, are with me. And these Jews, and I, I'm not here to, listen, I could tell you of my four grandparents, I'm not sure what they did and how they did it at different points. I mean, but there were Jews who, 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 who pushed themselves to do it. I want to first start with a quote by Rabbi Yosef Friedensen. Rabbi Yosef Friedensen was a survivor. He, after the Holocaust, he was in multiple uh, concentration camps. Uh, he, he was the editor of a New York-based Yiddish mag- magazine periodical called Das Yiddish Avart. His father was, was before the Holocaust, one of the heads of the Warsaw Warsaw. Jewish community, I believe he was even on the, on the Council of Warsaw. So I, I, this, is, uh, this is something he wrote. Actually, my, his granddaughter was a classmate of my wife in high school, and she remains to this day a good friend. My wife told me, I got this offline from an article he wrote, that she remembers Rabbi Friedensen, Zachar Lavalka, a blessed memory, whenever he would speak about the Holocaust, and again, he was in multiple camps. He was, he was I, I believe, he was liberated in Bergen-Belsen, uh, he was in multiple camps. Uh, he would always speak about the spiritual resistance of the Jews. This is what he had to say. I remember the day clearly. It was September 1939. And we knew that the Germans were amassing on the Polish border. An order had come from the Polish government for all able-bodied men over the age of 16 to go to Warsaw. <laughs> they didn't know the Germans were that. They started calling all 16-year-old plus men to come into Warsaw to fight against the Germans. Um, ostensibly to unite all forces in order to combat the Germans. So my father, Rabbi Eliezer Gershon Friedensen, and I set on foot, they were at the time in, in Lodge or Wudge, I know some people are going to correct me on Lodge, Wudge, right, to Warsaw. We encountered the dreaded Lutwaf many times along the road, and we drove for cover when they swooped down upon us, machine guns blazing. By the time they got from Ludz to, to Warsaw, the war, as far as Poland was concerned, was essentially over. The mighty Polish army had largely lost in three days. 
I begin this story with an attempt to respond to the ridiculous bantering of many, like my coach, who claimed that the six million Kedoshim, the Kedoshim is how the, the holy people who died in the Holocaust, went to their deaths like sheep to the slaughter. Nothing could be farther from the truth. They went like heroes of spirits. Anyone who thinks that the Jewish masses could have united to defeat the Germans should just ask that the might, what happened to the mighty Polish government. If the Polish army could not last three days under the Nazi onslaught, how could anyone dare say that the civilian Jewish population could have successfully fought back? In the five plus years I endured under Nazi occupation, torture, and degradation, I can testify that they never broke the collective spirit of the Jews. They may have been physically stronger, but they never defeated us. We remained the Am Hanifkar, the chosen people. The Germans, by perpetrating the most heinous acts of barbarism in the annals of mankind, acquired a place in history. But it was on the wrong side. The real heroes were men like, he says, like my father, Hashemim Kondamo, God should avenge his blood, who in the Warsaw Ghetto opened his window to throw scraps of bread to starving, crying children outside. And I said to him, Tata, what about us? His answer rings in my ears today as clearly as the day he spoke them. Tonight we have enough bread. Off Morgan, that God's organ. And then tomorrow, let God worry about it. They didn't have refrigerators, but he had food for today. So he threw it out. Who would ever allow children to marry in the ghetto with a seeming death sentence over around the young couple's head? Well, I got married in the Warsaw ghetto. This is Joseph Friedensen speaking. Due to the heroes of spirit, like my father, who quoted the prophet Isaiah, how just like Sancherov went from being high and mighty down to ultimate defeat, so too will Hitler and his cohorts. And Hitler is like the Shishlina Rebbe who promised my mother-in-law that if she allows the wedding to take place, he guarantees we will both survive the war. That was in 1942 in the Warsaw Ghetto. (laughs) They were true heroes. In the slave labor camp, I can testify how Jews baked matzos in 2,000 degrees smelting ovens with the cooperation of our German overlord. I remember his incredulous look when he asked us, how could you be worrying about your God in the situation we're in? Didn't your God forsake you, he asked. One of the elders in the group responded, not totally and not forever. The German took a step back and said, I'm afraid that the Fuhrer will never be able to destroy such a people. In the slave labor camps, on the death marches, at the firing squads, Jews went with Shema on their lips, with Ani Mamin, that I believe my wife's grandmother, who was 
I've mentioned this before. I'm, my, my, I, all four of my grandparents were Polish, and my wife comes from a mixed, mixed marriage. We call it intermarriage. Polish and Hungarian, right? <laughs> we have a lot of jokes about that. Yeah. Uh, so my wife's grandmother, who was, was Ungarish, Hungarian, she was on the death marches, right? She was in Mathausen at the end of the war, and she was on the death marches. And she, I heard her say multiple times, on the death marches, they were saying, Ani on the death marches. There were six million, Rabbi Friedensen completes, heroes of spirits. Heroes of spirits. So Moshe Prager was a, was a, a, a famous Holocaust uh, historian in Israel. Um, and his, many of his books have been translated uh, into English. One of his books, uh, he was not a Hasidic Jew, parenthetically, uh, but one of his books is called The Hasidic Movement in the Holocaust. And this is what he says. It was 1939, um, and the Germans had come into Lublin. And a German commander forcibly assembled some of these Hasidic Jews. And he said to them, I want you Hasidim to dance to a melody. I want you to dance. If you don't dance, you're going to pay the price. Pay the price. So hesitantly, someone began to to sing the the, the melody. Let us be reconciled. God in heaven. And they started to dance, to dance a little bit. The song, however, did not, people were depressed. This was Lublin in 1939. They didn't really start dancing. And it was really, a not, and the German said, if you're not going to dance, you're going to get killed. Right? And all of a sudden, one Jew started to, 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 to sing, Mir velin sai erblin avinu shubishmayim. We will outlive them, O oh Father in heaven. And when they started to sing that song, we will outlive them, God in heaven. All of them started to dance. All of them started to dance. And they danced like a Simchas Torah. And the Nazis were like, like what, are, what just happened over here? And they actually made them stop this dance. It was the dance of Jews who stood up. You know, uh, I brought a couple of the books over here. Moshe Prager, one of his books is called Those Who Never Yielded. And he, he starts out this book with a remarkable thing. He said he was at a conference of historians in the Holocaust. And they were asking, who showed greatness of spirit? Who showed greatness and spirit of the Holocaust. And they went through multiple people. This uprising, this, that. And ultimately one of them said, you know, and it was a secular person he brings down, that I think, when I look at this picture, if anyone wants to see it afterwards, it's this picture. This was by the Warsaw Uprising in 1943. It's a picture of the Germans coming in and there's Polish Hasidim in still Hasidic garb. When I see this picture, when the when the Germans in 1939 had already banned payas and beards, and there were Jews hiding for four years, and they look at these Jews like, how in the world are these people going to walk around like this for four years? They had hid underground and not reported to work. To do that, they had to, they had to get, didn't have, which means they didn't get ration cards. When I see people like that, who four years in the Holocaust 
in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto could have kept their faith like that. That's and that's why he wrote this book. He says um, the Nazis subjugated the Jews to severe pain and privation. There were Jews who did many things to, to, to come against. One of the famous uh, sages who were, who were in multiple concentration camps, who lost his entire family, first wife, as I mentioned this when I spoke with my grandparents, I am a product. My mother's parents both were married to, to different spouses going to the Holocaust. You know, my grandfather saw his wife and two kids shot in front of his eyes. And my grandmother escaped the, the uh, ghetto in, in Galicia uh, when her first husband had become blind due to the starvation, with my, ha- with my aunt, who uh, was born in 1942 in Poland. Um, so there were many people who lost their family. The Blazhev Rebbe lost his wife and kids, and he rebuilt his family after the Holocaust. He never he asked him to write a book. He would never talk about many of the things that happened. But there was one story he always said. Now this story, actually, is in many places. But one of the places in... Anyone ever hear of Yafa Elyach? Yafa Elyach. Yafa Elyach. See over here. Yafa Elyach was a professor at Brooklyn College for decades. She was she for those in the Holocaust Museum. You know the Hall of Pictures, the fifteen hundred pictures they have there. Yeah. She designed that hall. So Yafa Elyach. She passed away about a year ago, actually. Um, she was in born in Lithuania. She herself writes how she saw her mother and brother at the age of four being shot in front of her eyes. One of her books was called The Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust. She has many books. This is not tales. These are all interviews. And in this book, she interviews the Blazhev Rebbe. Okay, she was not a Hasidic Jew by any means. right? But she interviews the Blazhev Rebbe. And this is the one story he told over. He says he was, in the, the, he was also in many concentration camps. He was in Janowska Road Camp, in the Janowska Concentration Camp. The, who, one of the famous people of the Janowska camp was who Bob just mentioned today, was Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal was in the... He talks about, in this book, The Sunflower, the Janowska camp that he was in. So the Blazhev Rebbe was in that camp. And he said over the following story, One morning in Janowska, I was standing and sawing wood with another katznik, with another camp inmate. As we were sawing wood, the wind carried in our direction, piercing. There were tormented cries because they were collecting all of the children, all of the kids in the camp to be taken away from their parents. It was a kid's action. It means that the kids were going to be taken out of the camp. They were only going to keep laborers in the camp. All of the kids were being ripped away from their parents, never to see their parents again. And he, he says... The desperate clamor was coming closer and closer as if the weeping was filling up the entire universe and drowning it with painful tears. We continued sawing our, 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 the wood as our eyes became heavier and heavier with tears. Suddenly, just next to us, I heard the cry of a woman. Jews! Have mercy upon me and give me a knife. In front of us was was standing on pale as a sheet. Only, this is all from this book, only her eyes were burning with a strange fire. I thought she wanted to commit suicide. I looked around and since I saw no Germans in sight, I said to her, why are you in such a rush 
to go to the world of truth. We'll get there sooner or later. What difference can one make when they make? All of a sudden, I heard, Dog! What did you say to that woman? A tall, young German who appeared from nowhere demanded an answer while swinging his rubber truncheon above my head. The woman asked for a knife, I explained, and to her, uh, I explained to her that Jews are not permitted to, to take our lives, for our lives are entrusted to the hands of God. Um, the German did not respond to my words. He turned to the woman and demanded an explanation from her. She ex- answered curtly, I asked for a knife. As she was talking, she kept examining the German with her feverish eyes. That's good. In case anyone's getting drowsy, you wake them up. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll wait because... Oh, thank you. It's a good time. Thank you. Um, so it's a little bit... Her gaze was fixed at the top packet of the German's uniform. The sharp shape of a knife was clearly visible through the pocket. Give me the pocket knife, she ordered the German in a commanding voice. The German, taken by surprise, handed the knife to the woman. She bent down and picked up something. Only then did I notice a bundle of rags on the ground near the sawdust. She unwrapped the bundle. Amidst the rags on a snow-white pillow was a newborn babe asleep. With a steady hand, she opened the pocket knife circumcised the baby in a clear intense voice she recited the blessing on circumcision blessed are you our Lord our God king of the universe who sanctified us by your commands and commands to perform a circumcision she straightened her back looked up to the heavens and said God of the universe you have given me a healthy child I am returning to you a wholesome kosher Jew she walked over to the German, gave him back his bloodstained knife, and handed him her baby on the white p- pillow. Amidst the veil of tears, I said to myself, the Blazer Rebbe, who passed away about 20 years ago in Borough Park, was a, with many thousands of Hasidim students. Amidst the veil of tears, I said to myself that day in the Janowska camp that this mother's circumcision will probably shake the foundation of heaven and earth next to Abraham on Mount Moriah. Where can you find a greater act of faith than that Jewish mother's? And the rabbi told Yafa Elyach, who writes this in her book, Since liberation, each time I am honored in a circumcision to be Sandik, the person who holds the baby, during the breast, during the circumcision, it is my custom to tell that particular story, which she was an eyewitness to. Rabbi Ephraim Oshri who survived the war, uh, was a rabbi for many years in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, was, it was in the Kovna Ghetto in Lithuania, in Kaunas. And he wrote a book in the Holocaust called Responsa, Responsa from the Holocaust. And Rabbi Aushri, the whole book were questions that observant Jews asked him in the Kovna ghetto, in the Countess ghetto. And he, he describes in this book, it's, 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 you can get this book on my response to the Holocaust, uh, he, that he describes how Jews in, on labor would go ahead and say, 
Shema. Does everyone know what Shema is, by the way? Okay. And he would say, would, would say, would say Shema. And they would time themselves to be able to read Shema. He also writes, the one of the questions he got, there were Jews who were not taking the rations because the Germans did not have exactly a kosher kitchen. Okay? Uh, they were not eating because of this. Now, I will be very frank. I, when my grandparents were running for their lives, they didn't have any option, right? They, 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 I, my grandparents grew up very religious in Poland. Uh, they t- ate whatever they can. But if you have an option, uh, observant Jew would try to keep, would, would keep, would keep kosher. So he writes that these Jews would work and they would not be eating the rations. They'd only take the bread. Because the bread inherently had to be kosher. But he says, in 1942, I told them at that point the rations went so low, they needed to eat at that point. But until that point, they did, they, they didn't, they did not eat. Um, this is again from Yafa el book. Seder night, as she quote, this is with the blush of a rebbe. If you ever want to see a picture of a holy, holy Jew, I don't think she has a picture in the book, I don't remember correctly. Um, if you look, at his, uh, he was, uh, you know, there's a word in Yiddish called Himmel, a heavenly Jew. He was, he had this look. So she describes, this is, she did not, he did not tell her this. An eyewitness told her this about the blood of a Rebbe who conducted a Seder, a Seder in Bergen-Belsen. In Bergen-Belsen. And this is the description of the Seder. The rabbi of Blozhev sat at the head of the table. He was surrounded by a group of young children and few adults. The rabbi began to cite, recite the Haggadah. Remember, they didn't exactly have the Maxwell House Haggadahs in Bergen-Belsen. Um, the, the rabbi began to recite the Haggadah from memory. He uncovered the matzahs. They don't say how in the world he got matzahs in Bergen-Belsen. Lifted the plate and began to tell the story of the Exodus. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungered, let them come and eat. Right? This is how, that's how the God goes. Then one of the younger people asked the four questions. Why is this night different from all other nights? For on all other nights, we eat either bread or matzah, particularly matzah. It was dark in the barracks. The moon's silvery pale glow was reflected on the pale faces. It was as if tears silently streamed down the cheeks that were flowing towards the land. The legendary angel jug of tears. And that night, the Blasher Rebbe said as follows. Now you have to imagine, I'm not sure if it was 1943 or 1944. He was not there until 43. So it's one of those nights, uh, one of those years, 43 or 44. By, by Pesach 1945, they were liberated. Right? In fact, there's a very famous picture in Buchenwald of the liberated camp in Pesach 1945. Um, but on Seder night in Bergen-Belsen, the ancient question of the Haggadah assumed in a unique meaning. A unique meaning. Night, said the rabbi, means exile, darkness, suffering. Morning means light, hope, redemption. Why is this night different from all other nights? Why is this suffering different from all of the previous sufferings of the Jewish people? No one in Bergen-Belsen attempted to answer the rabbi's questions. But the rabbi Israel Spiro, the blood of the rabbi, continued, for on all other nights we either eat bread or matzah, but tonight only matzah. Bread is leaving to height. Matzah is night. Uh, and he said, 
tonight we have only matzah. We have no moments of relief. Not a moment of respite from humiliated suffering. But do not despair, my young friends. The rabbi continued in a forceful voice filled with faith. For this is also this. Tonight what we're doing is the beginning of our redemption. We who are slaves who serve Paro in Egypt, slaves are also of Adam. Um, I don't know, I'm going to skip what he continues. But he then said, this too will pass and there will be light. There will be days that we have Seder and we won't be in Bergen-Belsen any, anymore. And then he says, the, Seder conclu- the book brings Seder concluded, somewhere above the silvery glow of the moon was dimmed by the dark clouds. The rabbi of Blazhov kissed each child on the forehead and reassured them that the darkest night of mankind will be followed by the brightest of days. Esther Farbstein, who's a Holocaust historian in Israel, records that there were Jews who wore tefillin. Everyone know what tefillin are? Last days, right? Arm, head. There was, and, and she brings out, it was documented in Auschwitz. There are three different documentations in three different sides of the camp of Jews who wore tefillin in Auschwitz. Um, in Auschwitz. Um, one of the documentations she brings down that Rabbi Aronson told the long lines behind the barracks whose inhabitants had a pair of tefillin that you ha- to get the tefillin, you missed uh, an hour of sleep and coffee because there was a line to do it. She brings down their testimonies about tefillin in labor camps and around Groisweizen. I'm not even sure anyone where Groisweizen is. In Groisweizen. Um, some Jews would, just, would, would consistently wear a line. Also, she brings down, based on eyewitness testimony, that in Auschwitz, there was a minion. Okay? They ended up having a minion in Auschwitz. Despite the general atmosphere, this is page 423 of her book, Hidden in Thunder, despite the general atmosphere, there was a group of tenacious Jews, simple Jews, convinced of their belief, which they demonstrated daily, that everything that happened was carried out by supreme power, even if we couldn't grasp this with our simple human minds. Out of that group... A group of worshippers, which at first was very small, uh, started to recite Minyan every single day. On more than one occasion, a comrade who did not want to pray, who was not observant, was stirred up by the melodies of the prayers, especially on Friday night. Um, also, she brings down on page 423, about Rabbi Yeshua Grunwald, from, this is on, from Hungary, from Hust, who said that it was a prayer book which was written on a piece of paper, and 2,000 people used that piece of paper, which was passed around in Auschwitz. Uh, there were women who, who, who recited the daily text as well. Now, to be honest, this spiritual heroism, which went on during the Holocaust, was manifested certainly after the Holocaust. Because, you know, when you were destroyed, many Jews went through six years, some two to three years of the Holocaust, to get on and move on with your life. I mentioned, when I spoke about my grandparents about a year ago, how my grandmother lost every member of her family. Her parents, grandparents, all of her siblings, cousins, her husband, 
He used to tell me always as a little as a kid. She died recently at 103. I think she may have been older. You know, like she lied about her age. Who wants to say you're 103? Right? 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 She used to always say, "Say Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Thank God for every day." You know, I I I would say many people what went through what she went through. You know, she was running for her life for years in the Holocaust. You know, um, I recently watched her uh, her show of. I'm doing genealogy right now. So I recently watched her. She was interviewed by the Spielberg Foundation. And I heard this story, just to watch it over again. And another organization from Florida, the Holocaust. And when I was watching, like, and you hear the story. And I'm thinking to myself, how was she not traumatized? You know, that she, to rebuild her life, I'm sure she was. But she rebuilt. And there were Jews who, after the Holocaust, the first thing they did in the camps was to get married. That's spiritual heroism. Right after the Holocaust, to start your life in the DP camps, in Buchenwald, where, you're, where, where Jews were staying, in, in other places, to rebuild, to get remarried, to start your life again, to move on, not just to mope and mourn for your rest of life, which would have been a normal human, human, human uh, reaction. They bring the following story about, about the Klausenberger Rebbe. The Klausenberger Rebbe who lost his own wife and 11 children in the, in the Holocaust, we got remarried, got remarried, rebuilt his family and his Hasidic group. In fact, the main hospital in Netanya, Israel, is, was built by the Klausenberger Rebbe. The hospital of Netanya, which is one of the largest cities of Israel, was built by the Klausenberger Rebbe. Why? Because when he was... I think it was in Auschwitz, but now it was or Birkenwelsen. When he was there, he promised himself that if he would ever get out of the out of there, he would build a hospital. So, besides rebuilding his family and his Hasidic group and all kinds of other things, he built a hospital, which till today is the main hospital in Netanya, Israel. Okay, so they bring the following story down: in Erev Yom Kippur, 1947, in his quarters in the DP camp. As the Klausenberger Rebbe was preparing for the holiest day of the year of Yom Kippur, he was interrupted by a knock on his door. He went to open it, and standing there before him was a young girl with tears in her eyes. She said to the Klausenberger Rebbe as follows, Rebbe, every year my father would bless me before Yom Kippur. My tante was burnt alive. I have nobody to bless me. Could you bless me, Rebbe? So he put a handkerchief on her head, and with his holy hands he blessed her, emotionally and entirely like a father would bless a child. A few minutes later, another group of girls in the DP camp knocked on the, on the, on the, on the Rebbe's door. And they too said, Rebbe, we too would like to be blessed, Rebbe. There is no one to bless us. Once again, the Rebbe, that Erev Yom Kippur, did not eat. But he blessed 87 young girls on Erev Yom Kippur. That's spiritual heroism. I'd like to end with one story. I'll take any questions and I'll stay for comments. Rabbi uh, Yossi Wallace, who there's a group called Arachim. Anyone ever heard of Arachim? It's a, Jew, it's, a, it's a Jewish educational group, and it's a very, very, one of the largest, not the largest in Israel, very popular. He 
wrote the, in many venues and said many times the following unbelievable story about his father, Yehuda Judah Wallace. said as follows, that when his father was in Dachau, a Jew was being taken to his death suddenly, flung a small bag at his father, Yehuda Wallace. His father caught it, thinking if someone threw a bag at him and you're in Dachau, he was hoping it would be food. It would be a bag of bread. Some kind of food. Or maybe jewels to be able to pay off to get bread. Upon opening it, however, he was disturbed to discover it was a pair of tefillin. He was frightened because if the Germans would catch him wearing tefillin, uh, he would be caught, he would be shot immediately. So he hid the tefillin under his shirt and he headed for the bunkhouse. In the morning, just before the apple, the apple, apple or the roll call, um, while standing in the bunkhouse, he actually put on the tefillin. Unexpectedly, a German officer appeared. He ordered him to remove the tefillin. He took his arm, looked at the numbers, and at roll call, in front of thousands of Jew, Jew, silent Jews, the officer called out Judah's number, and he had no choice but to step forward. The German officer took the tefillin in the air and said, Dog! I sentence you to death by, by public hand, hanging for wearing these. How do you say dog in Yiddish, by the way? I'm, I'm like blanking over here. Hunt? Is it hunt? Okay. Hunt. Hunt! Right? So it sounds better. Hunt. You know, if you're speaking about the Nazis. So Judah, his father, was placed on a stool and a noose was placed around his neck. Before he was hanged, the Germans said, the Nazis said in a mocking tone, Hunt, dog, what is your last wish? To wear tefillin one last time, he replied. The officer was dumbfounded. He handed him the tefillin. As he put it on, he tied the tefillin. When you tie the tefillin, one of the verses you say is, I will betroth you to me forever. I will trust with me with righteousness and with justice and with kindness and with mercy and I will betroth with me with fidelity and you shall know God. He said, it was hard, it's, it's, it brings, it's hard to imagine the sight, but you had this Jew wearing tefillin about to be hung and he's standing there in Dachau in front of the entire camp. Entire camp. They made the men and women, all of them go out to watch this. And she says that even women from the Jordan camp were lined up in the barbed wire face fence because there was men and women were separate that separated them from the men's camp, forced to watch this horrible sight. And this Judah Wallace screamed at that moment, Yidin! Jews! I am the victor! I am the victor! Don't you understand? I am the winner! I'm the winner. And as Judah wa- turned to watch this, this silent crown, he saw many tears of people in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, crying as this whole scene is going on in Dachau in 1945. That they still had tears left to shed. 
and they're crying, and he screams out again, Yidin! I am the victor! Don't you understand? I'm the winner! And he was taken, the, the, the German officer understood the English because he said it in Yiddish, it's German. He said, you dog, you hunt, you think you're the winner? Hanging's too good for you. You're going to get another kind of death. And his father was taken from the stool. The noose was taken off his neck. He's still wearing his phone. He was forced into a squatting position with two huge rocks placed under his arms. And he was told uh, that he would be receiving 25 lashes to his head. It means they're going to take the, the whip and not going to hit his bo- back or body. They're going to hit him on the head where, they, where he had put on the, uh, on the tefillin. Um, uh, and the officer told him, if you drop one rock, I'll shoot you immediately. Um, and so the officer said, but I suggest you drop the rocks immediately because you're not going to make it even... Uh, so he, the, Judah's response was, no, I won't give you the pleasure. At the 25th lash, Judah lost consciousness and was left for dead. He was about to be dragged to a pile of corpses, after which he would have been burnt in a ditch when another Jew saw him, shoved him to the side, and covered his head with a rag so people didn't realize he was alive. Eventually, after he recovered consciousness fully, he crawled to the nearest bunkhouse that was unraised, piled, and hid under it until he was strong enough to come under his own power. Two months later, Judah Wallace was was liberated. During the hanging, this is what Yossi Wallace says, and beating episode, a 17-year-old girl has been watching the events, was watching the events on the other side of the fence. After liberation, she made her way over to this Yehuda Wallace, she walked over to him and said, I've lost everyone. I don't want to be alone anymore. I saw what you did that day when the officer wanted to hang you. Will you marry me? <laughs> My parents, Yossi Wallace says, went over to, walked over to the Klausenberger Rebbe, who was also in the camp, and requested that he perform the marriage ceremony. The Klausenberger Rebbe, whose own, uh, own sanctification was, was legendary, wrote out a Kasuba marriage cant- contract by hand, from memory, this is right after the Holocaust in the camp, and marry the couple. He says, I have that handwritten Kasuba in my possession to this day. And to all of you in this crowd who are celebrating, who are here as Yidin, 70 years after the Holocaust, you are the victors. You today should know that you are the victors. You who carry on and who remember the Holocaust, that is spiritual greatness. You didn't give up. You didn't stop believing in the Jewish people. And you didn't stop remembering all those who died for the Jewish people. Thank you for inviting me today. Is there any questions? Any questions? I'll stick around if anyone does. Yes. If anyone wants to leave, please, I'm, you know, uh, yeah. Um, just the other day, white nationalists were marching in Poland, chanting something about it being a white Catholic country. Right. And, and a lot of the blame is going to the government they have now, which is racist and xenophobic. Um, how can you use a combination of faith and power to change what is going on in the world right now? So it's two different questions. Faith is, faith is to, you know, let me give you an example. Faith would be, you have to, you have to believe, you know, I, I, I'm going to backtrack for a second. I want you to know, 
One of the greatest miracles since the Holocaust is Israel. That is faith. We were a small country. We had everything going against us. And we still do. You need to have faith to believe in us to do that. Otherwise you give up. If we didn't have faith, we would have given up in Israel. Faith means you believe that we could do the impossible. That's how, you know, I think Ben Gurion said, anyone who doesn't believe in miracles is not a believer. You know, it's not Israel. Yeah, you need to believe in it. But that's, you need to, to, to have faith means you, you can't give up on the Jewish people. You can't give up on good. Even in a world, if there's evil, you can never give up on good. You can never give up on God. You know, how the, you know, you know when, when the Rebbe was in the camp Bergen-Belsen, he had many satyrs for decades afterwards because he believed in the future. So you can't give up. The, word, the faith means you don't give up in the, in the ability of man, in the ability of goodness, and certainly the ability of God. Power, I would say, is not being silent. Power, I would say, is doing what you can. You know, being like a guy like Bob Zyman, who's involved in Simon Wiesenthal Center. Power is what you're doing today, going to public schools, um, like Lydia, like Lydia, who, Lydia, who, if you hear her, I, I, mean, I just met her, was proud and unabashed. That's power. Power is not being scared to make your voice being cleared. Power is the thing like Simon Weisenthal did, like, people like Eli Weisel did, and like many others, and like all of you. That's what I would say. Power is believing that you can change the world. Any other questions? Okay, thank you very much. I'm here.